Hello, and welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett, and I want to welcome back Max Frost from France. Uh, merci beaucoup. What does that mean? Thank you very much. Oh, all right. <laughs> no, I didn't know you spoke French. You, bon pick, you picked something up. <laughs> Jack was worried about that you're going to come back with a French accent. So a little, I shed it pretty quickly. The first day, I couldn't stop nasalizing all my words. No way. You actually yeah. had one? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know how this works. Anyway, we have a great show for you today. We've got Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, in his last interview on banter, at least, as president. He's stepping down on July 1st, as I'm sure you know. He's been president since 2009. And before that, he was a professor at Syracuse. He's written several books, one of which we talk about today, his recent one, Love Your Enemies. He's also the author of another great book, The Conservative Heart, which I remember reading uh, as an intern here, you know, where they give you that for free, really inundate you with the, with the <laughs> AEI. Uh, I'm not going to call it propaganda because it's actually good, but, you know, I recommend reading it. Yeah, we talked to them about his new book. Also about the role of think tanks and how politics have changed over the last decade. Uh, and we talk if there's any way for us to get back to a civil political discourse in the U.S. or if that time has come and gone. So we'll get right to it. He's way more interesting than us. And uh, without further ado, here's Arthur. Arthur, thank you for coming back on Banter today. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I, I love Banter. You know, I got to say, Banter was started, Stuart James started Banter back in the day. How many years ago was it? I don't even know if I was born yet. That <laughs> <laughs> makes me feel great. So it, Stu James started it something like seven years ago, and he had 400 downloads an episode. And you've got an order of magnitude or more, yeah, more than that now. And uh, it's been a really successful thing. I got to say, I get a lot of feedback as president of AEI. People write to me and say, I, I listen to banter every week. And these are, by the way, not just millennials. These are not just young people. I hear people my age that listen to it and like it. Um, so congratulations. We got a personal email from Paul Wolfowitz one time, and that, that made my day. So yeah, I don't true. get that a whole lot. That was great. I mean, he's internal to AEI, but I hear from people that have no connection with AEI, but they, they listen to banter because they're, they're policy freaks. Yeah. And, you know. And so are we. So are we. I wouldn't so call my mom a policy freak, but she likes it. <laughs> What's that? I wouldn't call my mom a policy freak, but she likes it. It yeah. might have something to do with the fact that her son is a host. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. My grandma says positive things as well. <laughs> Your grandma's listening to podcasts. That's an achievement. Just, just this one. I don't okay. know. She probably doesn't. I don't know how she even finds it. But She listens to a cycle of 75 podcasts. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> but this is, hi, Nana. This is her favorite. Anyway, right. all right. Uh, so as our listeners may or may not know, you are in the last days of your presidency here. Yeah. And you laid out your reasoning for stepping down in a Wall Street Journal column a few months ago. But uh. for those who have not read it yet, why are you choosing now to step down? So I've been president of AEI for 10 and a half years. And when I came in, uh, I, you know, I had been teaching nonprofit management, social enterprise management when I was at Syracuse for a long time. And so I'd been studying the careers of, of pretty successful social enterprise managers, basically entrepreneurs in the do-gooder sector. And I noticed some patterns on what they did well, what they did poorly. And one of the things that the really successful people had in common is they made a bunch of commitments and they marched through them and they kept to them. So my first couple of years at AEI, uh, in the, by about the end of 2009, I had made six commitments that I just walked through. You know, the first was to make the moral case for the work of the American Enterprise Institute, the moral case for free enterprise and American leadership. You know, our scholars and staff, they make the, the, the structural case you know, every single day. But my job was to make the moral case, to change the mission statement, the why of our institution, so that people want to invest in it and people want to be part of it. People can be inspired and fired up because I was. Uh, the second was to uh, radically increase our communications. And, you know, 
little banter, which is not so little anymore, was part of the expansion of that among our young people. But we've increased massively. We have 175,000 YouTube channel subscribers. I mean, we're the we're the most sophisticated uh, communications operation in the whole think tank world at this point. Continuous improvement on our research is three. Four was to triple our fundraising and then some. Five was to get us into a, a structural thing, to get us into a permanent home completely paid for, which we're sitting in right now. We're looking in a building at 18th and Mass. It looks like, you know, Dracula's Chateau. And 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 the last the last was to be out in 10. You know, 10 Why years. Why 10 years? 10 years because, you know, that's there's no magic behind 10. Uh, but what I've noticed in the careers of people who run institutions is that there's an S-curve. When you think of the, the letter S, you know, you get off the bottom, which is it's flat and it's hard to get started. And then you get this really steep part in the success of your organization, you know, the, you know, good work and good revenues and good growth and all that. But it flattens out. And there's a tyranny to that. You talk to any Silicon Valley entrepreneur and they'll tell you the same thing. If you're lucky enough to get off the bottom of your S-curve, which... By the way, in our industry, 70% don't get off the bottom of their S-curve. Most you know, leadership transitions fail because you know, most people can't get a business model running effectively and to change, inflect an organization. But once you inflect it, it's great. But you have to recognize that it's going to start flattening out. And your obligation before it starts flattening out is to find a way to get somebody else in there to get a new S-curve. And that's usually about 10 years. And I thought about it and I discerned it. And I talked to a lot of people that I I, uh, I trust, and I prayed about it, and uh, I said, "Yep, you know that's the right thing to do," and it was one of my commitments. And so, at the about the little before the nine year mark, I told our board, and we rolled out the decision, and we started a process, and it's been the most orderly transition process probably in think tank history, hmm. because you want to know why? It's because we're doing it on purpose. Ten years, long time. Yeah. Longish. I mean, long. Long-ish. You know, for a young guy like you. But in our industry, that's short. I mean, typically people stay for a lot longer than that. Ten is the beginning. You know, thirty-five is long. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but ten should be about you know what it takes to execute your vision and not so long that you flatten out. Well, in the D.C. political landscape, ten years can seem like an eternity. Yeah. Um, given all the changes and everything we see. So, what do you see from when you came into AI, leaving now? How has the political landscape changed, um, and how has AEI's responsibility in that landscape changed? So when I got to AEI at the end of 2008, of course, it was really unusual circumstances because the recession was just raging. And it was bad because we were running a big deficit because our, our fundraising had, got, had taken a big hit, like everybody's fundraising. We weren't special in that regard. Um, but politically, it was an interesting time, too, because it, the recession had created strong headwinds for the, the for conservatives, given the fact that it had been eight years with George W. Bush in the White House. People really wanted a change. They voted in Barack Obama, who was coming in just vowing to do all kinds of very, very progressive progressive things, many of which our scholars thought were, were misguided policies. And so... It was it was scary financially, and it was a big challenge in terms of policy, and that's that's the ecosystem that I that I faced. Now that said, the the political infrastructure on both sides was more conventional than it is today. We weren't in a populist environment yet. People kind of knew what it meant to be on the right. People kind of knew what it meant to be on the left, and all that has has gone into a period of flux, N- not unpredictably, by the way. Um, there's a lot of good research that shows that in in, in about the 
you know, the fifth to 10th year after a financial crisis, you get tons of political populism. There's good research on this. So there's three guys at the University of Berlin who wrote a paper in 2017 that looked at 800 elections over 120 years in 20 advanced economies. And they showed that, that there's a 30% bump in support for populist parties and candidates. And it's caused by recessions, by financial market recessions, not ordinary recessions, financial market recessions. And it you know, takes a few years to clear, but you get tribalism, you get you know, leaders who are actually followers of the popular will. You get all kinds of backbiting. You get the, the negativity and the culture of contempt that we see in politics today. And, you know, everybody is super surprised that this happened. Well, you know, you got to look at the data. This is actually not that surprising. Uh, the, the only really interesting thing is, is actually how do we use this as an opportunity to move forward as a country and to rebuild, in our case, the free enterprise movement um, in productive ways. Yeah, so this, we wanted to talk about this. I guess we'll talk about it a little earlier on the, in the episode than I expected. But how can you have, so you've written a book called The Conservative Heart. Yeah. We've had, we just had George Will on the podcast. He just wrote a book called The Conservative Sensibility. Mm-hmm. But then you also see polls where 80% or so of self-identified conservatives support Donald Trump, who yeah. frequently does things that lead people like George Will to say, this is not conservative at all what he's doing. So what's the role of a place like AEI or what's the role of you know, elites and media gatekeepers and defining what conservative is when no one can even agree, does conservative mean you support free trade or support tariffs? Do you support a strong uh, world America leading the world or a more isolationist America? Hmm. The term itself seems to be drained of all meaning. So where does, where, where does, where do public intellectuals and think tanks fit into this? Nobody cares about ideology in America. Nobody cares about the labels on their ideology in America. And, and that's a really good thing. I mean, a few people do. A few nerds with PhDs like me do. But ordinary people are going to soccer games for their kids and getting dinner on the table and going to choir practice and living life. And they're like, what are you? I don't know. Republican kind of. I don't know. I mean, people have more important things to do than wondering what conservatism is. That's important for us to remember at a place like AEI and to see it as an opportunity to work in sort of the climate of ideas instead of getting mired in the in the the weather of politics, you know, politics is and, and, and political designations and the, and the, the, the labels that we put on ideology, th- these are not that important for the progress of a country. Um, of course, we go through periods where you get, and just as the numbers would suggest, you're going to get populism in the wake of a financial markets crisis. Populism on the left looks like Bernie Sanders. Populism on the right looks like Donald Trump. That's kind of always been the case in some way, shape, or form. The one thing that both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump agree on is they're both protectionists. Uh, and Bernie Sanders is a lot more jaundiced about immigrants than, than, than more of a conventional liberal would be. Donald Trump has always been a closed border kind of guy, but these are populist positions, and this is the kind of climate that we would expect to face. Uh, let's forget about the labels a little bit. Let's actually work on what our values really are, which is the fact that you know we've been able to pull two billion of our brothers and sisters out of poverty since 1970 around the world. And the, the reason for that is quite simply the culture of democratic capitalism emanating from the United States and spreading around the world. And it's our job to get the next two billion of our brothers and sisters out of poverty while not actually doing something that will impoverish our, our fellow citizens inside the United States, which means we also need not just policies, but cultural change around how do we educate our kids? How do we get people in, you know, trained up for new vocations and the new economy? These are exciting and fun and good things. And getting to, 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 to face up to the scourge of populism as we currently see, see it uh, as, a, as a wonderful opportunity to redefine what our values are and help people, that's what excites me. So, yeah, 
yeah, conservatism looks like it's changing. And I wrote a book called The Conservative Heart because I wanted people who call themselves conservatives to understand that fundamentally their job is to serve others. Their job is to be fully alive by being in love with their fellow men and women. And, uh, you know, I wrote that in 2015, and I uh, suffice it to say they didn't exactly carry the day in the 2016 <clears throat> presidential election. But, it, you know, that's just because you don't win in a particular election you don't sweep the ideology of the current moment doesn't mean it's not going to come. So what do you see in the future once you leave here? You're going up to Harvard Business School? Kennedy I'm going to be at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Business School. Yeah. Both. Okay. Yeah. Well, in any event, in D.C., politically, you see the populist movement ending. You see it being absorbed by a different kind of conservatism. What do you see in the future? It's, you know, anybody who can predict in populist moments, it's a politics becomes a lot less predictable than it's been in the past. And this is one thing that we know. Politics becomes more of what a, what mathematicians would call a stochastic process or a random walk. Uh, it's just less determinate. And the people who predict it with a lot of confidence, those are pundits. And pundits, their main objective is making copy. It's not, you know, and it doesn't, and there's, being a pundit means never having to say you're sorry. You, you, you know, you can say something that's woefully wrong and it's published in the paper and ah, whatever, you know, it's taking a shot. But they have to say something different than everybody else and they got to make their deadline. Uh, we just don't know. Now, if it's anything like the past, it means that the, the near-in future is indeterminate, but far out, populism is going to fade. It's going to fade in a big way, and that has to do with the fundamentals of American culture. This is not an envious country. Populism is based on leaders who are actually followers. There's a big parade going down the street, and they're like, ah, it's a parade. i got to get in front of it because it needs a leader. Well, that's followership. Real social entrepreneurship is trying to change the course of the parade, and that's exactly what, what populist leaders don't do. Uh, the second is, is based on envy, which is, you know, I think there are scarce resources. When resources are scarce, as opposed to opportunity being plentiful, people are very comfortable putting their hand in their neighbor's pocket and being resentful of those who have a lot. I get it. And so under the circumstances, we see exactly what we would and, and what that means between parties and the political dynamics, it's impossible to say. But I honestly believe that's a political disequilibrium in America. We're not a politically, uh, we're not a populist country. We're, we, we actually do value leadership and aspirational leadership at that. And we're not an envious country either because ordinarily resources aren't so scarce. And so the result is I actually expect over the next couple of years to see more leaders stepping forward that have a, a, a beautiful and more aspirational vision coming forward. I think that that's going to be kind of on the waves. And a lot of people right now who are who are using this really populist language, they're going to repudiate it. I, I don't know whether, by the way, I don't know if it's 18 months from now or whether it's 36 months from now, but that's typically what would happen in America and I expect to see it. So the people who are listening to us right Right now, that they want to be ahead of the curve, should start talking about you know more positivity, more competition of ideas, more loving your enemies, more listening to people who disagree with you, and you're going to look like you're ahead of the curve. So you just mentioned love your enemies. That's a book you wrote recently. Yeah, March twelfth, it came March out. 12th. Yeah, exactly right. We'll, we'll put a link to it in the in the bio and everything else. <laughs> Please go buy it. Um, I'm curious though. So that you. Some you know where that science. comes from? Where does, where does love your enemies come from? Who am I quoting? Uh, but Gospel of Matthew, right? Well done, sir. What chapter? I don't know. But okay. look, <laughs> I'm a, uh, look, I'm a Catholic like you, but I don't, you know, Catholic. You're a Catholic, but you, you subcontract out your Bible reading to Ca professionals? Cath yeah, Catholic. <laughs> we, don't, we don't read the Bible. We have, you know, priests who do that for us. I got it. Matthew 5, 44. It's also in the Gospel of St. Luke. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I was close enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so you... <laughs> no, you're good. It's good. Look, it's good. I'm you, you, you got the You got the evangelist right. Yeah. Uh, Nana, your Nana right now is saying, good for you. 
Yeah, I don't. You know, it's I don't know if my nanas are Catholic. It's my uh, other side. But <laughs> regardless, it's uh, awkward. <laughs> <laughs> um, I might cut that out. <laughs> don't cut it out. Regardless, you read some social science for that book, I'm sure. Yeah. And what did you come across? So I read when I was in college. I read. Brian Kaplan's Myth of the Rational Voter. There's yeah. this other philosopher, Jason Brennan, has a book called Against Democracy. Yeah. They cite a lot of social science that basically says people are not actually that persuadable. People have political beliefs are so core to people's identities now that actually changing their political beliefs is painful to them. Yeah. It's like politics now is the religion of modern times, essentially. Right. When you were you know, researching Love Your Enemies, do you, did you find similar things? Are people that persuadable or are we just kind of locked into what we, what we believe, what our parents believed? Yeah, so it, it, that's a complicated question. And but then there's a lot of social science on this. And as a behavioral social scientist, I'm very interested in this. It is true that that people have a tendency to stay with their confirmation. They, they, they look for, they have a confirmation bias, meaning they're looking for evidence that what they already thought was right. And it's very hard to move them off their positions. I, I, I get that. But here's the key. They're a lot more likely to move off policy positions and political positions and a lot less likely to move off moral positions and ethical principles. And so basically, if you can make common cause with somebody morally and ethically, you can have a much more flexible conversation about the politics that actually get that done. That's the key thing to keep in mind. But if you start any conversation with somebody with whom you disagree on politics and policy, people are going to dig in and that's going to be the source of their confirmation bias. On the other hand, if you look deeply and you listen deeply with an open heart, with a heartful of love to somebody with whom you disagree and you try to figure out what motivates them morally and you and you say it back to them. So is what you're saying that is this really all about equal human dignity to you? And if you can get them to say, yes, that's what I mean, then you can have a conversation about politics and you know, you can persuade them. Mm-hmm. You really can't. That's what the, what the research really says. So if you start with one thing, that's if you start with the policy, policy will be immovable. If you start with morals, policy becomes a lot more flexible. And so that's one of the things I recommend in this book, if you want to be persuadable. Here, the biggest problem with our time right now, this is what bugs me, is that everybody's acting as if they could insult their fellow citizens into agreement, which is insane. It has never been done in human history. Nobody's been persuaded by hatred. It can't be done. If you're in, okay, so so maybe people aren't trying to persuade each other. That's what a lot of people are listening to this. They're like, yeah, they want to go on Twitter and they want a virtue signal and they want to express their outrage. And they want to have a temper tantrum. Yeah, I get it, man. I can dig that. Uh, that's not what we should be doing. If you really believe that your principles are right, you want people to change their beliefs and change their behavior. So take a shot at being more persuadable and persuasive. Take a shot at being happier and make other people happier and take a shot at actually unifying us so that we can have a better country. And the, literally the only way that you can do that is listening to people, sharing values and loving everybody, including your enemies. Well, do you think there's any part of this of our society that has just changed to the point that that may not be possible like it used to be? Because if you look at a lot of this social science, mm. you know, and all these ideas, like you just said, well, now if I want, I can pull out my phone, I can go on Twitter, I can create my own sphere of, you know, yeah. my own echo chamber. Never, you know, I can exist purely, you know, between my friends who share the same ideology and then go online and just meet with people who have the same ideology. Um, do you see that these social media and other forms like that has changed this at all? Mm. Or do you think this is just kind of an aberration? We'll get back to where we were. It's a good question. It's a smart question. Um, and I know a lot of people who think that America is fundamentally different, that, that, that societal circumstances based on technology, whether technology is a cause or a consequence, is a different matter, that we've changed. Um, 
The problem is that with that argument is that it's always been the argument people have made. If you look at what social critics have been writing since the American founding, the pamphleteers, everything's different, permanently different. And then it isn't different. And then it isn't permanently different. You know, people are people. And I realize that social media uh, filter bubbles, information siloing creates an enormous resistance to people actually hearing outside viewpoints. But I think that we look back with rose-tinted glasses a lot at the past. We look back at the good old days a lot more. You know, <clears throat> they weren't that great. You know, I was, I was having this conversation with, a, uh, uh, with Ken Burns, the f- documentary filmmaker, probably the greatest documentary filmmaker currently alive. Um, and he had just finished his documentary, Vietnam, which Fantastic. is, oh, it's amazing. I mean, everybody has to watch Vietnam. I mean, it's like, a thousand hours long. It's super long, not a thousand hours, but it's eight DVDs. It's exhaustive in its detail, but it's so beautiful and so interesting. And 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 I was complaining to Ken because we're friendly, and I said oh, how bad it is, how bad it is politically. It's never been this. I said it's never been this bad. You know, I said, well, you know, when was the last domestic bombing carried out because of politics in America? I'm like, I don't know. Was it? I think in that New Jersey or that one didn't go off. Was it Times Square? And then he's, you know, not, you know, somebody who's gone and shot up a workplace or a school shooting, but somebody who put a bomb someplace because of politics, terrorist act, domestic terrorism. And I, and I said, well, I don't know. He says, how many do you think there were in 1968, 1969? I said, I don't know that either. He said 700 domestic bombings because of politics in 1968, 1969. For us to say, it's never been worse and it'll, it'll, it'll always be bad. It's just... That's how people always talk and people always think. The most rational way to think about it that's most consistent with history and facts is to say, it's going to get better. We don't know how fast. And we can be agents of that improvement, but only if we dedicate ourselves to that cause joyfully. And that's the reason I wrote Love Your Enemies. I, I hope you're right. And I mean, I, I do agree. I roll my eyes all the time when people say we've never been more divided. We fought a civil war as a country. So it seems absurd to say that we've never been more divided as a country. <laughs> but on the other hand, I, I kind of agree with Max that this time does seem different, which I know you're never supposed to say. But like with the Internet now, at least in terms of gatekeepers and the media, people, at least conservatives used to talk about all the time how William F. Buckley was able to write the Bircher movement out of the conservative right. movement. Because there's no internet, National Review was able to kind of define the terms of the debate. 2016, 2015, National Review had their famous against Trump uh, cover and didn't matter at all. There's no, without any gatekeepers with the internet and everything, how, like, it's, it seems like it is just a free for all. And now, especially when you can silo yourselves in, these, in your own little ideological echo chambers, I mean, how do you how do you go out and persuade people who might not ever even come in contact with you because they don't want to be persuaded? Yeah, that that's always been the case. And you know, we we look back, we interpret what has happened through history as being these you know major tectonic moments where William F. Buckley wrote the Birchers out of the conservative intellectual movement <laughs> as if he were the the Pope or something, right? <laughs> and you know, writing out some heresy and saying it, it but it. it probably wasn't like that. Yeah. I mean, the truth is that there was something, I mean, I, I knew people, I, I wasn't conscious of that when it was going on. I probably wasn't even alive when that happened, but you know, I knew people, you know, when I was a kid who were aware of that would talk about it. And the, you know, the, the Birchers were not influential, 
The Birchers weren't that numerous, and they were super radical. I mean, they thought that Eisenhower was a communist. And, and so it's not, it's not that hard to re- read them out of something. And, and so, I, I, and again, you know, with all due respect, somebody who's, you know, Buckley historian is, is you know, throwing his iPhone across the room right now. Um, and <laughs> I, I don't, there's a lot I don't know and a lot that nobody knows because, but we're, we're, we're remembering these things in a particular way. Um, I strongly suspect that the political moment of the current day is going to be remembered as a temporary thing, mm-hmm. as not the as not the new normal in the conservative movement, whatever that happens to be. And I think that the conservative movement will come back strong and better than it happened to be. I mean, the problem was it was a it was a pretty sclerotic phenomenon before Trump came and 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 shook things up. We have a huge dignity crisis in this country. It has a lot to do with the way that you know the government has provided services and neglected people at the margins um, of all races, but people in the, you know, the bottom 25% of the income distribution who get almost a uniformly lousy public education and, and therefore don't have opportunities. And, and that's been exacerbated by both political and economic trends. And the result is we get somebody who shakes up the system. Now, it doesn't mean the person who shakes up the system is going to be remembered as a hero. On the contrary, I think that probably we'll, be, we'll look back on that in a really jaundiced way. But maybe the conservative movement will be one that actually stands up for dignity, that uses the free enterprise system fundamentally as a source for, the, for dignity for the people at the margins of society. And, you know, I'm going to spend the rest of my career helping make sure that's so. So yeah, dignity. I know you talk a lot and you write a lot about dignity and work. Yeah. And how how closely intertwined it is. And now, so I had an interesting conversation. I was just in France. I was talking to a German friend of mine. Mm. You know, asking about European opinions of Americans. Yeah. And she said they've never liked us. So yeah, no, <laughs> never. Well, I don't know. Um, so and she said, you know, what Germans think about America is how can work be so central to your life? Yeah. How can everything be work, work, work? Everything is about work. Which, I mean, I see where she's coming from. I know, obviously, we have our own system, pros and cons. But do you think, in any point of American culture, there's too much of an emphasis on work? Is that possible? Uh, Well, for sure. In anybody's life, there's going to be too much emphasis on work. What a lot of my European friends, and and I've lived and worked in Europe for a lot of my career, and... um, one of the things that, that I think it's worth pointing out is that we, in, in most ways, in my view, as a social, social scientist, we have a much healthier attitude toward work uh, than they do in Europe. And part of the reason has to do with the fact that we have a, a largely merit-based work system. You know, people can't earn their success. Work is an enduring uh, element of human happiness. It's one of the f- elements, the f- there are four parts of human happiness that you can really uh, control. There's a lot of happiness you can't control because it's genetic or circumstantial, but the parts that you can control are your faith, your family, your friendships, and your work. And work will bring you enduring happiness if it has two elements to it, if, it, if it's based on service and where you have accomplishment, in other words, where you earn your success. Mm-hmm. And where they've twisted labor markets uh, like a pretzel in all over Europe to the point where, you know, they're negotiating whether or not they should have a 34 hour work week or, you know, retire at 55 years old. That is insane because you don't have enough time to serve other people. You can't earn your success effectively. And as a result, it's, it's, it's kind of red work out of the, out of the happiness equation in, in major ways. And that doesn't mean that, that too many Americans that uh, don't do it wrong, if you have four parts of your happiness equation, faith, family, friends, and work, then don't do only work. 
you know, so, so what, one of the things that I think is worth pointing out is that people over, over emphasize work in their happiness equation. They love their work, but they're investing in it too much. And it's, it's people who do nothing but work and they're, and they're neglecting their faith and their family and their friendships are doing the equivalent of investing their entire pension portfolio in Greek bonds. You know, it, maybe it'll work out, but <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. So, and, and so one of the things that I talk about as a diagnostic tool is I'll ask people who are not happy with their lives, what part of that portfolio are they underemphasizing? And I talked to a lot of Europeans, and they're, 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 they, they don't, their work life is not meaningful to them. They have no religious faith. Family is greatly attenuated, given the fact that Europeans have stopped having children a long time ago. I mean, Europe is becoming kind of a combination of, of assisted living facility and theme park. <laughs> and, and, and with friendships, I'm not quite sure. And so the result is, I think that we have, the, at least in the United States, a potential for a much happier balance on that, um, notwithstanding the fact that too many people have a workism as a religion or, or prestige in work as something substituting for the real enjoyment, the real satisfaction that work should bring. All right, we're almost out of time, so final question. I know yeah. this might sound a little bit like asking a, a guy on the 25th mile of a marathon what you're, when you're going to run another one, but yeah. you just finished Love Your Enemy, so I yeah. know you're you know, probably a little wary from that. But what is next on the agenda? What are you going to research next, and what are you going to do at Harvard? And yeah. what's, what's next? It's, it's a good question. You know, I, it's, uh, for the past 10 and a half years, I've you know, poured every waking drop of energy into the American Enterprise Institute. Um, so I'm going to teach a couple of classes at Harvard. In the fall, I'm teaching a class uh, on executive, or on public leadership, and, and I'm designing the part of the class on how to, how to manage yourself. Um, in, the f in the spring, I'm teaching a class at the Harvard Business School called Leadership and Happiness. So, and those are nice creative endeavors, but of course that leaves a lot of time for creative work. I'm going to increase the frequency of my Washington Post column. I'm doing a bunch of feature pieces, one of which is, is dropping uh, just this week in the Atlantic about how to design the second half of your life. I'm going to be doing more of that. I'm in early talks on designing a television show on the pursuit of happiness. Nice. Uh, my, my podcast creatively titled The Arthur Brooks Show, did a couple of seasons and we're talking about a third and fourth and seasons beyond about the idea of how to living, live a fulfilling life. And, and, and just in general, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next book and article and television and podcasting creative projects, dedicating myself to lifting people up and bringing them together. I don't know what form this is going to take. Maybe in a couple of months, I'll start getting the shakes and start raising money or something, or you know, whatever, whatever you know, fundraising addicts do. Uh, Andrew or, needs a new studio. You no, know, know. <laughs> you don't need a new studio. I mean, this place is unbelievable that we're sitting in right here. And uh, you guys are going to with this podcast. I want you to tweet a picture of AEI's fabulous recording studio, paid for by AEI's one fantastic studio, blessed fantastic donors. Studio. Um, but we'll see. You know, uh, we'll see what the 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 key thing is not the what. The key thing is the why, and the why for me is the equality of human dignity and the limitlessness of human potential. All right. Well, we look forward to watching that and where it all goes. Until then, Arthur, thank you for coming on Banter. Thanks for Banter. Thanks for being at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'd like everybody listening to uh, make a commitment to suggest that 10 friends listen to Banter so that we can increase the scope and range of this by another factor of 10. Pay it forward. Yes. That'd be great. All right. All right, yeah, I guess this might be your last ever episode, so we should also say, if on behalf of everybody at AEI, thank you for your service to the Institute. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Keep fighting for the people who need us the most. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed the show. If you did, please be sure to rate, subscribe, like, share, tell your friends, do whatever it is that you people do to show that you appreciate our podcast. 
Also, remember, you can also email us at banter at AEI.org if you don't want to you know, say anything publicly. We always enjoy them. We always respond. Yeah, we look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, and we'll be back next week with a mystery guest. And soon we will return to Banter Book Club, an idea that started about a month ago but never has taken off the ground. But We have a book in mind. We have a book. And it will be read and discussed at a date to be announced. Yeah, well, I think we'll probably aim for two weeks from now. Two weeks, Two yes. weeks from now. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Bernard Lewis, What We're On, Middle East. Hope you read it too. Email us questions. Yep, sounds good. All right. Until next time.